If you have a handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, I need you to take that out. I'm going to guide you to the fill in the blank on that sheet in my introduction. I'd like to welcome everybody at OnSite Rockland as well as watching online live stream. Good morning to you. Uh, also on the, the radio program and all the other stuff that's going on. We are in part 39 of our Being Jesus series and entitled this morning's message, All In. And I want to begin with a story. Uh, I was up at the men's retreat just the other weekend. A men's retreat that was stunning in beauty and reconciliation and spending time together with other guys. Four churches coming together. It was a beautiful look, a beautiful view of heaven as two of the churches were primarily African American, two were predominantly Caucasian, and, and, and watching everyone worship together and laugh and joke together, and it, it just felt more like Jesus. It was just, it was kind of a, an amazing time. And, and one night after we were talking about all that stuff, I got to sit down with Pastor Stephen Trent from Uganda, the gentleman that is here with us still. Uh, he'll be heading back tomorrow. Um, talking with Pastor Steve, this story came up, and it was interesting that I was developing this message, he didn't know that, but he told me a story that kind of caught my attention. He said this. He said, back in the 90s when Idi Amin was in charge, he had a friend who was in church that was visited by Idi Amin's soldiers. Now, if you know anything about this dictator, he was not known as a gentle guy. He was not known as a super level-headed guy. He was certainly not known as a Christian leader. And so when they came in with their guns and filled the church, they said, to all of you who would say that you are Christian, stay here. To all of you that say that you are not Christian, you have freedom to leave. Step outside the door. Now you have to understand, we've all heard variations of this story, right? We all know things like this don't end up well. This is kind of a, this is a persecution, kind of difficult environment. And so uh, a group of people, quite a few, went outside. And inside, everybody was waiting for the inevitable, which of course is to be killed for your faith. When everyone was outside, the soldiers turned and looked at the pastor and said, now you have a more purified church and walked out and beat everyone outside. They were all taken away, and nobody knows what happened to them. But when Idi Amin takes you away, it's not a good thing. Now that's not at all how we would assume that would have turned out. I asked Pastor Steve, I said, why did he do that? He said, I have no idea. And I said, what happened to those guys? He goes, I have no idea. Uh, but the bottom line of that story is that Stuff like that actually happens. And it happens in the world all the time. And it doesn't usually go that way. It usually goes the other way. And so the questions come up in our minds, what would happen if that happened here? What would happen if somebody said, are you willing to die for your Jesus? What would you say? Now what I find intriguing is that the disciples were willing to die. The apostles, those guys, 
They were willing to die. And we know because of two particular passages. You can just listen to this. John 11:14 through 16, on the way to go see Lazarus, who lived not too far from Jerusalem, the disciples knew that it's very likely Jesus would die on this trip. And so Thomas, the guy who gets slammed all the time for being the doubting guy, never gets credit for this line. He said, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas said, I know it's just a trip, but this trip very well may cost us our lives. I'm in. That's pretty intense. He was willing to sign it off and move on. And even though we know the end of the story to this next one, I want you to hear the words as they were said. Matthew 26, 33 through 35. And Peter answered Jesus, though they all fall away, meaning all these buddies, all the disciples, all the followers, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, you know the story, the denial of Peter and all that. Understand the intention of the heart of all those disciples, they verbalized, I will die with you. That's pretty intense. And as a matter of fact, historically, we find out things like James and Matthew were beheaded. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Peter, Philip, and Andrew were all crucified, one of them upside down. And it goes on and on and on. As a matter of fact, every single one of the apostles were murdered for their faith, except for John the Beloved. He's the only one that didn't. They owned it. They believed it. They walked it. But is it only these kind of guys? These, it, does it have to be the apostles going, well, yeah. I mean, they knew the Lord personally. Let me read you a story. And the disciples had disciples, right? I mean, that's kind of how the church kind of flourished throughout the years. And one of the disciples of the disciples was a guy by the name of Ignatius. In 110 AD, he was arrested and was sent to die from his home place. He was the bishop of Antioch. He was the head dude in Antioch where Christians were first called Christians. It was a Christian hub where God was moving powerfully. He was the leader there, and because he was promoting Jesus Christ, he was sentenced to death to be brought by guard all the way down to Rome to be executed. On that travel, even under guard, he preached the gospel and encouraged all the churches in every city all the way down along the way. As a matter of fact, when he stopped in Smyrna, before hitting Rome, he wrote a letter to the Roman church to say, don't stop my execution. Because he didn't know what the church was going to do. They were going to try to, you know, panic and try to get him free somehow, some way. And he actually said this, meaning facing death, here's my perspective. Now I begin to be a disciple. I don't care for anything visible or invisible, but that I may win Christ. Let fire and cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me, be it only that I may win Christ. Even while waiting in the dungeon in Rome, hearing the lions in the next room, he was quoted as saying, I am the wheat of Christ, 
I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beast that I may be found pure bread. What kind of perspective is that? And you're like, all right, all right, Lance, seriously. So you grabbed the apostles, you grabbed Ignatius, seriously? What about like Jimmy who works at 7-Eleven? You know, what about regular folks? How does that work? Well, let me tell you a story. 1991 in Lebanon. Mary Corey was 17 years old when her village was raided by Muslim fanatics demanding a forced conversion to Islam or they would be shot. She replied, quote, I was baptized as a Christian and his word came to me, don't deny your faith. I will obey him. Go ahead and shoot. Along with her mother and father, she was shot. Two days later, the Red Cross found her paralyzed on the ground, left for dead, but still alive. She said when treated for her wounds, now that she was a quadriplegic, she said, everyone has a vocation. I can never marry or do any physical work, so I will offer my life to the Muslims. My life will be a prayer for them. This is real. These are real people. These are everyday people. These are not superheroes. What is going on with these people? I would suggest to you that they have a martyr's heart. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. A true disciple has a martyr's heart. A true disciple has a martyr's heart. And what I mean by a martyr's heart is a willingness, not necessarily an eagerness to die. Now you got to understand that that gal, Mary, didn't want to die. She didn't want to get shot in the head. She didn't want to be a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. There was not an eagerness for pain, suffering, woe. That was not what she wanted, but there was a willingness to die for her Lord. And so a martyr's heart is one who is willing to die if it comes to that, but even more so living a life that says, not my will, but thy will be done. That's a martyr's heart. So do we have one of those? We're about to read two stories about a man named John the Baptist who had that in spades. He had all of that. I mean, he was hardcore. He was, I must decrease, Christ must increase. He handed over his whole ministry to Jesus. He went all the way to the wall and he got killed for his faith. And I'm going to tell you that whole story. But the question is, where is our heart today? Are we willing, not eager, I'll tell you right now, I'm not eager to get shot and become a quadriplegic. That is not my joy of today. Am I willing to live a life that says, I'm not my own, I've been bought at a price, I'm Jesus, and however he wants to use me, may it be so. That, I believe, is the heart of a true disciple. So why don't we go ahead and, and dive into this. Um, you don't need to open your Bibles for the fact that they're going to be on the screen. I'm doing a combo version of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so that doesn't exist in its form in your Bible. That was a reorder that I wrote. And so let's go ahead and put those up on the screen, and let me just give you a background. In case some of you are brand new to church, not familiar with who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist was a guy that was the cousin of Jesus, older than Jesus, yeah, their moms were related. And John the Baptist kind of was an old school guy, looked, dressed like Elijah the prophet. Had camel's hair, 
like robe thing, leather belt around his waist, outdoors guy, lived the whole life of a Nazarite vow, ate locusts and wild honey, lived very simply. I mean, if you're talking about monk style, outdoors dude, that was him. And so he was pretty intense. He comes on the scene and says, thus saith the Lord, repent, get your hearts ready. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins because the Messiah is on his way. And when he comes, he will baptize you with fire and he will make you new and give you a new heart. Now that's a pretty hardcore thing to say, especially when it's been 400 years of silence for the Jewish people. He is the first voice in 400 years that said, thus saith the Lord. So you've got to imagine everybody's locked on this guy. What's he going to say next? Man, do I need to get baptized? This is weird. I'm a Jew. I don't need to get baptized. Gentiles need to get baptized to become Jews, but we're good, right? Why do we need to get baptized? And John said, you absolutely do. You've got to get your hearts right. The Messiah is waiting for you. And so there was this intense ministry. John got popular, but he was polarizing. People hated him. People loved him, right? Pretty intense guy. Well, actually, he was so intense, he got thrown into prison because John couldn't keep his mouth shut. Well, he's all right with that. But let me tell you, this is where we begin the story. Let's read together. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, this is saying, if you remember the portion in the Bible where Jesus sends out the 12 with authority, he said, hey guys, I'm going this way, I'm going to do my ministry thing. I want you guys to go out on your own. You've seen me do it, I've imitated it for you, you just duplicate that, let's do that. You go out, preach the gospel, cast demons, I want you to heal, I want you to do all the same stuff I do, you just go that way, I'll go this way, and we'll meet up at the end. That's what it says. The disciples of John the Baptist reported all the deeds of the Messiah, the Christ, to him in prison. He is now in prison in a place called Machaerus, which is the bottom level of a palace that the leader of the time, a man named King Herod, though he wasn't a king, he was a tetrarch, King Herod had two palaces, this was one of them. In that dungeon, chained to the wall, is the outdoorsman, who's now locked with no windows, in total darkness, because he stood up for Jesus Christ. He said, they sent word to him in prison. And John the Baptist, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? A couple questions for you. Number one, why does John the Baptist still have disciples? I mean, this guy, here's his message. I'm set up guy. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is on that side of the street. I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, one of Jesus' apostles, Andrew, used to be a disciple of John the Baptist. Then he grabs his brother Simon Peter, and they both move on over to Jesus' team. So why does John the Baptist still have disciples? Is it possible that maybe they're mature enough to know that whether or not they're in Jesus' inner circle, they're still building the kingdom of God, and they don't stress about stuff like that? Maybe they were hanging with their buddy realizing this guy had an important role too and they didn't walk away. I don't know, maybe. 
The bigger question is, why is John asking this question of Jesus? It seems rather odd, does it not? Here's what he's asking. You're legit, right? Now, why is he asking that? That was his whole ministry. Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. And then all of a sudden he's like, you are the Messiah, right? <laughs> like, I have been sending so many people to you. I'm telling everyone to go to you. You are the Messiah. Yes? I mean, I, I wasn't assuming on that one, right? Why would he ask that? He already sent everybody there. Well, we have two popular options in scholarly work. One says John was in a place of doubt. That he was saying, listen, this is not gone at all like I thought it would. I'm a hardcore guy. I even said, hey, I'm the one washing you with water, but whoa, check out the one that comes burning with fire and he's bringing judgment and he's going to be, you know, cracking heads and being all intense. And the way I'm seeing it, you're awfully nice. I'm not quite sure what to do with you. Uh, you're kind of out there, oh, you're healing, and you're you know, holding the kids, going, ha, 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 ha. I'm not quite sure what exactly we're doing here. You're, you are him, right? I mean, I, I trust everything you say. If you say that you're not him, you're not him. If you say you are, you are. I just need to know, because this didn't go down like I thought. It is estimated that John had about a two-and-a-half-year-long ministry. Only one year was of, of that was outside. The other year and a half was in a dungeon. In other words, talk about a lame ministry. It was like, hey, here you go. Oh, you're gone. I mean, it was just poof, like that. And he's like, that's not what I thought. Here I am doing nothing, taken out of my world of being outside. I'm not impacting anybody. My ministry was super short. You're not doing what I thought you would do. Man, are, is this how it's supposed to go? The other way that the scholars would guess is that it wasn't about John at all. That John had followers and he knew that he was going to die. And when he was going to die, he needed his followers to follow Jesus. So he sent his followers to go check it out, know it for themselves, so they'd have confidence moving forward. Now, which one is it? We have no idea. I would suggest I subscribe to the first one because I know na human nature. And human nature is, no matter how big and bad you are, no matter how much ministry you've done, every human being has doubts. Every human being rethinks every time Satan gets in there and goes, dude, I don't think that's how it's supposed to go. And constantly you're worried that you did something wrong. I think that's realistic. So I have no problem thinking that John is just trying to get everything locked down before he goes. Notice how Jesus responded. How should he have responded if... If John's disciples come up and they go, hey, John wants to know real quick, are you the one? What should he have said? I totally am. Let him know. He's, we're good. But he didn't answer that way. Watch how he answered. Next, next part. In that hour, while John's disciples were there, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight... The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. Well, that was kind of a different response. <laughs> Massive demonstration of the power of God. But notice how his response went. Here's what he said. He's like, what's your question? Are you legit? Well, hold up. I can answer you, but I don't want you to think about my words. I can tell you anything. I want you to watch the actions of my life. Watch this. And he goes through and does everything the Messiah is supposed to do. And so he goes, John will understand. 
And then they're able to go back to John and go, hey, this is what we saw. This is what we heard. What do you say? And John's like, no, he's good. Here's what's so personal about this. Are you able at your workplace when someone comes up to you and says, hey, are you a Christian? Like, I can't really tell, but, but I've heard a rumor that you're a Christian. Hey, are you a Christian? Are you able to say, you know what? Honestly, if I answered you, it wouldn't even matter. Take a look at my life. Look at what I do. Look at how I handle myself. Look at the power of God moving through me. Take, take a look at the evidence. I mean, I can sit there and go, blah, 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 and talk all day long, right? Or are you still the Christian that if somebody says, hey, are you a Christian? You go, you know what? I am a Christian. Let me tell you why. In John 3, 16, it says, and then you start quoting 52 different verses about why you're a Christian. I'm glad you know the word. I'm glad you can give a reason for the hope that lies within. But what I'm saying is, why can we not rely on our lifestyles to speak loud enough? Why is it always more talking? Ah, that's a tough one. It says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Because all now everybody's rattled. They're like, man, I don't know what to do with John. He was really asking questions about whether you're legit or not. And, well, maybe he's, maybe he's bailing out, and I don't know what's happening. He's like, let me be very clear on who John is. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? When you went out to go see John... What did you think you were going to find? What, a reed shaken by the wind? Did you really think you're going to go find a politician who's like, oh, I'm, I'm all about this. No, 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 I'm all about this. And you're just kind of moving with the flow. Whatever makes people happy, that's the stuff that I do. Is that what you thought you were going to find with John? No, that's not going to happen. What, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, seriously, check this out. Those who are dressed in splendid soft clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts and houses. Well, were you looking for a man of sophistication and refinement? You thought he was going to kind of orate this beautiful thing to you? No, John just got in your face, spit at you, and said something about, you're a viper, repent. You know, He's like, he's not exactly refined. So no, you probably didn't get that. What did you go out to see? Would you go out to see a prophet? He certainly is a prophet, more than a prophet. As a matter of fact, he's the one of whom it is written in Matthew 4, 5. Behold, seriously, check this out. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. What? How is he more than a prophet? He goes, no, no, no. There were a lot of prophets, and they were all intense. This guy? He's the herald that goes right before me. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. It's not a matter of he just talks about God's stuff. He literally has the role, here's Jesus. Right? That, I mean, that's his job. His job is to go out in front and go, the Messiah is here. The greatest news the world has ever heard. He gets to deliver that message and is backed up by the Messiah. That's pretty impressive. He's like, no, exactly, he's a fulfillment of the last verse of Malachi that's the last book in our Old Testament. It literally closes with a promise that Elijah's going to come, and he goes, that's John. Truly, I say to you, that's the other verse. Remember, we have two words that we, that we 
replace, yeah? Behold means seriously, check this out, right? Y'all remember that? The word truly, truly, I say to you, that one's lame too. So we're going to replace that to, listen up, this is deep. Okay, all right, here we go. Let's keep moving on. Listen up, this is deep, Jesus says. Among those born of women, there is arisen none greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? What does that mean? Listen, if you have Jesus saying, best man, that's it. Among born of women, that's my man. You're pretty impressive, right? For Jesus to highlight you out as the best born of women, come on. That's insane. And I want you to kind of pick up this motif, pick up like a, like a wedding motif, literally... He's saying, he's my best man. Why is he your best man? Because he's the best man in my life. I mean, this, this is the guy. If I was to select out of all my buddies and everybody that's out here, John the Baptist is my best man. At my wedding, he's going to stand at my side because I want to highlight to everybody, he's the man. And then he said, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God, even a little child, in the kingdom of God is better than he is. What does that mean? Here's what John did not have. John would never on this side of the earth see the cross. Do you understand what the cross means? The cross is a demonstration of the intense love of the Father that you never can grasp until you see him allow his own son to be hung and die for all the sins of the world that you might live. John never saw that. John never saw the full impact of the love of the Father. Not only that, he was not going to see on this side of heaven the indwelling Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit come upon him at the womb, but it was on him. It was not in him. And after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is inside, and everybody that has that is a partaker of the divine nature. You're now not just human. You are now connected with Christ and unionized with Christ. You are now a new creature, a new creation with new possibilities. You are now a child of God. Now all of a sudden, you're a whole different category, so even the least of those has what John doesn't have. Here's the other part of the analogy. Who in a wedding scene is better than the best man to the groom? It's an easy one, you guys. Come on. The bride. I don't care how big and bad your best man is, who you going home with? know what I'm saying? The bride. Who is the bride? The church. John was the best man, but the church is the bride. Who gets to be with Jesus in that special way? Who gets to be with him all the time? Don't get me wrong. John is awesome, but John was old school. John was Old Testament, and Jesus went home with the bride, and so that's what he's trying to say. And then he says a couple other weird things. He says this, from the days of the law, the prophets, that's the Old Testament stuff, until John the Baptist, meaning and recently, until now, 
Meaning right when Jesus was talking, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Man, people have been trying to destroy Christianity and God's move on this world through Judaism and everything else. He has just been bombarding. The enemy has been destroying it by violence. And because of that, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, the Greek's bad, and all the scholars argue about it. Here's what I think it says. It's a super intense world to be a Christian, and the amount of persecution that comes in from the enemy, unless you're intense, you're never going to make it. you got to hang in. you got to be desperate. you got to be hardcore. Otherwise, it doesn't fly. If you are not all in, the world will convince you to get all out. You know what I mean? For all the prophets in the law... All the Old Testament prophesied until John. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, all Jews knew the last line of their Old Testament collection of books. They all knew that before the Messiah showed up, Elijah had to show up. And it's so clear to them that even modern day Orthodox Judaism at their Passover seders will leave a chair open for Elijah. He's got his own spot. Sometimes he's got his own wine in front of him. And there's other things that they will do during the Seder to say, symbolically, we're waiting for Elijah to come because the minute Elijah comes, we know that the Messiah is coming and then everything will be right. Jesus said, if you can get this one and understand it, he just showed up in John. Is that a reincarnation of Elijah? No. It's John is John, but he is the metaphor for Elijah. And you go, I thought he was supposed to literally come back. Here's a weird side note. Some students of the Bible find that in the end times in Revelation, before Jesus returns and fully cleans everything up, two witnesses show up in Jerusalem. you remember this? And they tend to speak and say something. That's kind of weird that Elijah never died. You remember he was taken up in a chariot of fire? And then all of a sudden other ones show up? And then all of a sudden Jesus comes back in a different... Ah, it's probably just a coincidence. Let's move on. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What does that mean? It means all the people were able to rejoice that had submitted to needing to get their hearts right, but to those who didn't submit to getting their hearts right, they didn't buy any of it. They're not with them. So Jesus said this. But to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Meaning those that had rejected What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, their playmates. We played a flute for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you did not weep or mourn. You know what that means? When I first read through it, I was like, no, I don't. And then I studied, and I was like, oh, that's easy. Here's what it means. It's just like being around a bunch of kids, and they go, hey, do you want to dance and have fun? The other kids go, no. Hey, do you want to be totally bummed out and sad? No. All right, so you don't want to do anything. You don't want to do this side. You don't want to do this. What do you want to do? Here's the point. When your heart is hard, nothing's good enough for you. 
you're always going to have a problem with everything. No matter how many different ways God brings the gospel to you, you got an issue with everyone. It doesn't matter whether or not a kid comes up to you and says, Jesus loves you. You say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You're too young. And then if someone old comes to you and says, you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you say, you're old school. You don't know what you're talking about. We learn better than that. If somebody comes in being funny, you think that they don't take it seriously. If somebody comes in too serious, then they're too serious for you to actually take within your heart. If your heart is hard, everybody's rejected. So who can God speak through in your life? Apparently nobody, because nothing's good enough for you. All right. Second story. Now this is going to do what's called a flashback, right? We've all seen those on TV. John is in prison. We're going to find out why. By the time we get into this story, John's dead. We're going to flash back to find out how he got dead, right? So this is what it says. Now at that time, King Herod who only Matthew calls king because he's not really a king. He's a fourth of a king, but that's how what title he desperately wanted. As a matter of fact, he's going to be banished for his desire to want that name king. It doesn't go very well for him. He's not a king, but Matthew maybe is just being nice. That's how people talked about him. Now, at that time, King Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, the fame of Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known. This is, this is a long time later than our first story. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Some said that Jesus was Elijah who appeared. And other people said that he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old who has ridden, risen. But when Herod heard of it, he said to his servants, No, this is John the Baptist. John, I beheaded. Who is this that I hear such things about? No, John has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous signs are at work in him. And he sought to see Jesus. All right, you need to know some history real quick. It's super convoluted, so I'm going to try to only give you the basics. If you want more detail, you can dive into my notes and find out how twisted and messed up this soap opera is. We're going to talk about the Herods of Rome. The Herods of Rome, it, Herod is a title. It's not a name. So everybody has the name Herod in front of their name, and that makes it very complicated. So if I was to say King so-and-so, you would wait for the next name to find out which guy I'm talking about. King doesn't tell you anything. Herod doesn't tell you anything. Not only that, but he names a bunch of his kids the same name. That's irritating. Please don't do that. <laughs> right? If I ever have to tell your story later and you have two sons named John, that's just uncreative. <laughs> right? Come up with another name. All right? Anyway, here's how it went. There was a guy named Herod the Great. He was the big dog. He was the one that was in charge when Jesus was born that decided to kill all the babies. You remember that? That was Herod the Great. He is kind of a big deal in Roman history. He built a bunch of stuff, did a bunch of things. Actually, the prison that John is hanging in right now in our story was rebuilt by Herod the Great 60 years earlier, right by the Dead Sea, up on a cliff. It's a beautiful palace, but it has a pretty nasty dungeon. His dad did that. Now, Herod the Great had a bunch of kids. The guy we're talking about is his seventh son. He had five marriages and a billion children. As a matter of fact, he killed most of his sons. So this is a really messed up, twisted, bad guy, right? Well, his sons aren't exactly healthy. So what happened was when he knew he was going to die, he broke up his kingdom into four pieces. 
Three of them he gave to his boys. Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth. That's all. So when you hear Herod the Tetrarch, it means one of the sons ruled a fourth of the kingdom. It's not super fancy. It's not complicated. But here's what's bizarre about it. One guy gets the extreme north. One guy gets the middle. That's our guy. His name is Herod Antipas. Another horrible name. Then the lower one was by another boy. All right? So Jesus' area is ruled by this guy, Herod Antipas. He's a tetrarch, not a king, and he really, really, really wants to be king. All right? As a matter of fact, it's this Herod Antipas that is going to handle Jesus when he goes on trial. So for all of our moving forward story, Herod Antipas is the guy. However, it gets a little bit creepy in a moment. It says this. He now flashes back. For it was Herod the Tetrarch who had reproved, was reproved by John the Baptist for what? Herodias, his wife. Quick side note, we're doing baby dedications today. If your child's name is Herodias, I'm sorry, you're a bad parent. Okay, do not name your daughter Herodias. Anyway, she didn't turn out to be a good girl. Here we go. For it was Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, he had sent and seized John, bound him, and locked up John in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been constantly saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But Herodias, his wife, had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted him to be put to death, but she couldn't. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, so he kept him safe. All right, this is where it gets weird. You have two brothers. One's name is Philip. Actually, two of them are named Philip. One is a tetrarch, one's not. The non-tetrarch guy, who's just a wealthy citizen, had a wife named Herodias. Meanwhile, his brother, Herod Antipas, the guy in our story, had a daughter from a neighboring kingdom, called, we now know it as modern-day Petra. Uh, back then, it was the call, they were called the Nabataeans. He has a political marriage to his daughter, and then one day... Herod Antipas goes to visit his brother in Rome. Hey, Philip, what's up? Ooh, your wife is super good looking. Hey, I'm going to hang out with her for a little bit. They start a romance, and she leaves Philip and goes with the other brother. He divorces his Petra princess. She runs home to dad, ticks dad off, dad attacks. That's a whole other story. You don't want to do that. But here's what's so bizarre about the whole thing. They're all, Herodias is their niece. So she marries one uncle and then switches over to the other uncle, which is all kinds of messed up, right? And then you're going to find out how weird it gets from here. Okay. Here comes the story. By the way, I'm keeping it as PG as possible, all right? Mostly for the older generation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. I'm doing it for the kids. I'm just screwing around. 
So Herodias, who's his new gal he got from his brother, so he's now married to his niece that is his (laughs) sister-in-law. She don't like John the Baptist because John the Baptist is like, that is messed up. (laughs) And then he wouldn't stop saying it. He's like, seriously, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. I don't care who you are. You're wrong. God's not pleased with you. God's not pleased with you. And she's like, you got to shut that dude up. I will kill him. And Herod's like, honey, calm down. Let's put him in the dungeon, right? And so they shove him into a dungeon. And what's so weird about it is it shows that Herod's all twisted about what he thinks of John. He kind of likes him, but kind of hates him. He's like, no, 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 he's kind of cool, but I hate when he talks about me, right? It's the same way how the world interacts with Jesus, right? Man, Jesus, that's a good teacher. That's a good teacher. Yeah, he said you're going to hell. Yep, I don't like that part, but he's a good teacher. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's kind of how the world interacts with Jesus. They keep putting his shows on TV as long as he doesn't talk about them. Right? And we can all look at them and go, man, those people are stupid, except for we do the same thing. Right? Hey, Jesus, I love you as the healer. Oh, God, you're my healer. Let's sing a bunch of songs about you being my healer. But as far as that whole refiner's fire, you're getting in my face trying to root out sin. Yeah, that's irritating. Let's not do that. Can you just be nice, Jesus? That'd be nice. Right? But there came an opportunity to kill John. Herodias is like, man, I got an awesome opportunity. And watch her plan. It is one of the most wicked plans in the entire Bible. You thought Jezebel was hardcore. Watch this lady. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his high civil officer nobles, his chiliarchs, commanders of a thousand men each, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter, we know, according to history, her name was Salome, came in and danced before the company and pleased Herod and his guests. All right, once again, PG version, ready? (laughs) This is a dance that is normally done by professional paid prostitutes. Not this time. Now it is danced by Herodias' daughter for her stepdad and all his buddies that are completely hammered and drunk at the party. This is the mom's idea. She just sold out her daughter to all these disgusting men, and her daughter is approximately between the age of 12 and 14. How do we know that? Because the word that is used in Greek for this girl means earliest marrying age. It's the same word used for Jairus' daughter, who was 12. So we know it's as young as 12. We know perhaps it's as old as 16. It is much more likely in the 14-age realm. A mom takes her daughter to get back at someone, sends her into a highly sexually charged environment, makes her from a princess to a prostitute, sells her out to get what she wants, which is revenge on a godly man. I'm telling you, it's messed up. This is how it went. And the king said to the girl... Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now, how drunk and charged do you have to be, dude, to say that? You don't even have a kingdom, but you're saying, hey, whatever I got, I'll give you anything. So he promised with an oath. He vowed to her out loud to give her whatever she might ask. That's quite a dance. 
And she went out and said to her mom, what should I ask? Hey, this is your gig. This is your idea. What are we doing? I'm not, you know, personally, I'd like a pony, but apparently <laughs> you have other ideas. And she said, head of John the Baptist. So she came in immediately with haste to the king, prompted by her mother, and she said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry. Yeah, you think, you moron? Would you just sober up? That same word is used for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is how tore up the I mean, everything just stopped. And he went, oh, shoot. I'm going to lose everything. This is not going to go well. Because you've got to remember what John represents and the political instability that he's fighting with. You'll find that this whole relationship and this whole scenario will take him down and ultimately destroy him. Because of his oaths, his many promises he made while he was drunk, and because of his guests, and he worries what they think, he did not want to break his word to her and commanded that it be given. He immediately sent an executioner, which was a bodyguard and a courier, with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, and his head was brought on a wooden platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mom. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and buried it, laid it in a tomb, and they went and told Jesus. What a horrible ending to a brilliant man's life. Yeah. We think that if we do everything right, God's going to bring us riches and power and wealth, ease and prosperity. John the Baptist was called by Jesus the best man. Did everything right, Nazarite from birth, completely dedicated to God? The most hardcore, purified man walking the planet outside of Jesus. All in. Did everything possibly that he knew how to do, and this was his calling. Speak for about a year, do a bunch of messages. You're going to be arrested for a, trying to stand for God. You're going to spend about 18 months in a dark dungeon, and then you're going to get your head cut off because some girl danced and some guy was drunk. Sorry. That's it. That was his calling. Does that bother John? Here's my suggestion. Not at all. Why? Because it wasn't his life to begin with. He's like, what do I care? I'm a dead man. doesn't matter. I must decrease, he must increase. That's it. I am here for him. So you know what? If he wants to use me for one year, popular, awesome. Let's do that. I don't care why I die. I don't care what takes me out of this world. I don't care what dumb decisions were made. I don't care about any of this stuff. Is my God pleased or not? I never got into this to please people. I never got into this to try to make everybody happy. I never got into this for any other reason that God called me, John would say. And he asked me to do a job. I'm doing that job, and when he tells me I'm done, I'm done. Literally, I'm a setup guy. Jesus showed up, I got pushed out of the way, and I'm gone. Praise be to God. I only want to do what he wants me to do. Now... Can we be like that? Well, I don't know. Right? Do we have a martyr's heart? Maybe no one is ever going to challenge you that way. That you never know if you're going to put your life on the line for Jesus. So let me give you a better question. What in your life would keep you from having a martyr's heart? What is it that if I ask you the question, hey, you fired up for Jesus? 
You're like, yeah, kind of, you know, sort of. No, like, are you all in? Like, he's kind of constantly on your mind. You kind of walk through your day. He's in every situation. He's your list of priorities. He's your agenda. And you're, you know, there's a lot of prayer going on. You're trying to study his word to know him more. And you're just kind of all in. You go, well, I don't know when you put it that way. I don't know. Sometimes. Uh, Sometimes it's not all in. Are you all in? Whatever reason you give me for why you're not all in, that's what needs to be handled. For most of us, the answer is one word. Busy. Yeah? I mean, that's going to be the excuse you're going to drop on me, right? Dude, I'd totally be like that, you know what I'm saying? And when I retire, boom, I'm in. <laughs> Let me ask all the retired folks. How much, how much rest are you getting, right? Come on now. None. All right. And your life just doesn't suddenly go, hey, everything's cake now. All the retired folks are like, dang it, I'm working harder now than I ever worked when I was working. What's going on? Grandkids. <laughs> you know? What is it that keeps you tethered to something else other than Jesus? Because all I know is that when I listen to these martyrs, I hear a heart that is far more mature than my own. I find myself tethered and tied to things of this world, and tethered and tied to the comforts, tethered and tied to not wanting to die, tethered and tied to what people think, tethered and tied to stuff that's embarrassing. What about you? You too? I mean, I get it. If anyone's supposed to be all in, it's supposed to be the pastor, right? No, I feel that pressure. I get it. Every day I'm coming up, getting all, you know, firing y'all up, and I have to live honestly and authentically, so I live with a lot of, Ooh, dude, you're not there. I face that every day. But God is working on me. The Bible says that I have the indwelling Holy Spirit and he's not going to leave me the way I came. That he's going to continue to move me forward and transform me. That sin does not master me. That I'm not forced to sin. I now have options. I can now follow the Lord. I now have freedoms and power to be able to see advancement. I now can see God moving through my life. I can now have bigger, greater dreams and and more hope because God is refining me and burning out a lot of that garbage and he's getting me somewhere. Because if it's only up to me, I'd be going downhill. But because of my love of Jesus, he's moving me forward. I just pray that that is us all of us, that we're not going backwards, we're going forwards, and that we are pleasing our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for being patient with us while we grow. Thank you for, Holy Spirit, the way that you get in there and you cause change. Sometimes it's brutal. Sometimes it's gentle. Sometimes we didn't even see it happening and we see the effects. And so, God, I want to praise you for being so brilliant at advancing your children forward. I pray that we would not resist that process, but that we would submit that your will, not our will, be done. That we would be completely all in, bought in to what you desire and want. God, be glorified in us, in this place, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.